Coming up on Tech Nation, Andrew Keene has some thoughts on what we might do to change things up given the state of our current digital culture. His book is called How to Fix the Future. Then on Tech Nation Health, Dr. Steve Mento from Canadas Pharmaceuticals talks about our livers, which turn out to be very busy all the time, and their scientific work on treating NASH and cirrhosis of the liver. Also, Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft talks about the social determinants of health. It makes a difference. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Have you ever heard of the famous Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer film, Gaslight? Many of you will say, of course, while others will say, huh, who are they? The movie was released in 1944, a black-and-white stunner where the Charles Boyer character attempts to drive the Ingrid Bergman character off-kilter and under his control by having her doubt her perceptions. She tells him that the gaslight, which illuminated houses in London during the period in the film, would get brighter and less bright inexplicably. He told her no, she was imagining things. A series of events were manufactured, and he kept telling her, no, your perceptions are wrong, and she was safe with him. He would tell her one thing, and then claim he said another. Over time, she became used to this, expected that she would be confused by her perceptions, and dependent on him for the truth. That's just part of what made this movie a terrific thriller. But this aspect was so compelling, it became the basis for the popular term we use today, gaslighting. As described in Psychology Today, it's a form of persistent manipulation and brainwashing that causes the victim to doubt her or himself and ultimately lose her or his own sense of perception, identity, and self-worth. But that's not the kicker. The kicker is, it's not only played within personal relationships, it can also be played on entire societies. There are seven stages to a complete gaslighting. And the very first one is lie and exaggerate. Sound familiar? Have you turned on television recently? Who's fake news? Who isn't? Who can say who's telling the truth? Say anything and assert it's true and call anyone else or any other media organization fake. In situations like this, all the other rules of journalism and just being polite takes a back seat. There's name-calling and pejoratives and embarrassing accusations, and it's all presented as simply the truth. Our media diet has been a steady stream of misinformation, exaggerations, misdirections, and more. And when they cannot be denied, the response has been to call them hyperbole. Hyperbole? What's the difference? Well, hyperbole just admitted to exaggerations or misinformations, all right, but the definition says that they're not actually to be taken literally. Oh, so when is it exactly true and when not? 
there's no flag you hear or read that tells you, oh, this is hyperbole. Left unchallenged, it's presented as true. Say anything and don't note that it's hyperbole, and a whole bunch of people won't ever figure it out. And this is exactly how the mass media has become an unwilling partner to the gaslighting of society. Should we just ignore this? Well, no, because there's more. And we're humans. The next step in gaslighting is repetition, a skill at which all media technology is unsurpassed. Follow this up with escalate when challenged and then wear out the victim. Then form a psychological or emotional dependency on the person who is actually misrepresenting the truth. At this point, the gaslighter gives you false hope and then leads you unsparingly to that last step, dominate and control. Take a look at the movie, it's easy to find online, and then think about where you are personally and where we are as a society. No matter your political inclinations, we've all become victims and we are all wearing out. Another term for this is psychological bullying, and coming back from it will be a long, hard road. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how to fix the future. Andrew Keene joins me to talk about his take on our digital society today and in the future. Then on Technation Health, Dr. Steve Mento from Canadas Pharmaceuticals talks about their work in NASH and cirrhosis of the liver. And Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft explores the social determinants of health. Andrew Keene is well known for his insights into the emergent digital culture, and he's here today with How to Fix the Future. Well, Andrew, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you so much, Maura. It's lovely to be back. Well, reading your book, there's no doubt in my mind, your perspective on technology has evolved. Well, I hope it's evolved. That's very kind of you. Uh, I'm known, uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners will know, as a critic. I've written three books before this one, all one way or the other, rather critical of what's happened in Silicon Valley. I'm still critical, but rather than focusing on a critique, I'm now focused on solutions. Well, you're seeking, quote, to fix the problems of our great transformation without either demonizing or lionizing technology. That's a tough road to hoe in the middle there, making it neutral. Well, I, I, it's a tough road, but it's a necessary road. Um, I, perhaps in, in the past, have been guilty of demonizing technology. Maybe. Uh, and I'm sure you've had many people on your show who have been guilty of the other sin, which is exaggerating how it can solve everything. Yeah. And uh, as you said, the challenge is walking that fine line between idealizing and demonizing technology. And perhaps there's more to it than that. 
um, writing about broader social, political, economic, cultural issues without obsessing over the technology and yet recognizing that it's technological change, Moore's Law, Silicon Valley, and all the other things that we all know about, which is changing everything. Both as a journalist and as an engineer, I love making things concrete. Uh, and we all know about the networked world. We're always talking about it. But you actually traveled the world to make a map of it. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, it's, it would be very easy to come up with idealistic solutions, come up with utopias of one kind or another to solve the problems of our digital age. Rather than doing that, rather than just sitting in my home in Berkeley and coming up with those solutions. I traveled about 250,000 miles around the world from Estonia to India to Singapore to Western Europe, both the east and the west coast of the U.S., to find ways in which people are trying to fix the big problems of our digital age. So there's no theory in my book. As you say, it's, it's concrete. It's all facts. It's all actual people trying to improve their world. You talk to regulators, innovators, educators, consumers, and citizens, and probably more, but certainly those people. Did you, all, did you ask them all the same question, or did it depend? I asked them the same questions uh, about what they were actually doing. Those five groups of people, educators, citizens, regulators, entrepreneurs, um, are, are all the, they reflect the, f the five pillars of fixing the future. So I asked them the same question of what they were actually doing to solve some of the core digital problems of our age, from fake news to inequality to the threat of unemployment uh, to the problems which are inherent in, in many of the Silicon Valley monopolies. So yeah, the, the questions were the same, the same questions about the, the practical solutions to the dominant problems of our age. When you're talking India, Singapore, China, you're looking at all these places that make sense. Not everybody knows why you went to Estonia. Not everyone knows why I went to Estonia because not many people know even probably where Estonia is. It's a, a tiny little republic in the very northeastern corner of Europe, bordering onto the old Russia, Soviet Union, now onto Russia. It had historically been part of the Soviet Union. It's been independent uh, since the last part of the 20th century. And ironically, today, it's actually perhaps pioneering many of the digital reforms of democracy and innovation, in many ways actually doing more innovation, being more pioneering, more experimental uh, than Silicon Valley itself. Well, let's get a little more detailed. I mean, you're book is How to Fix the Future. The obvious question is what in those five categories? What needs to be fixed? I think if there's one word that sums up the book, it's agency. We have invented remarkable technology, but it's technology that's increasingly intelligent, increasingly uh, it's technology that dis or seems to disempower us, take away our authority our ability to write our own story, to determine our own narratives as human beings. Uh, that's perhaps best summed up with AI, artificial intelligence, technology that replicates what we do as human beings. So if there's one thing that I put my finger on in the book, in my journey around the world, it's human agents, the ability to shape 
technology to our interests rather than the interests of either technology itself or technology companies. The great challenge of our 21st century, which is increasingly the digital century, is shaping it according to our own interests. 200 years ago, the great challenge was shaping human interests to the industrial revolution. Today, it's the digital revolution. It can be done. Some people will say, this has never happened before in history. That's wrong. Our history is full of repetition. doesn't mean that everything in the digital age is repetition, but many of the challenges of the digital age were the same challenges of the industrial age, which in many ways at least we overcame and succeeded and shaped the industrial age for our own interests rather than having the industrial world shape it to its interests. One perspective I think that's important is now we're, we're getting the fact that this is the big bang of personal technology, the embedding of artificial intelligence capability or smarts, uh, the the cloud sensors, big data analytics, uh, all this you know global communication. Internet and, of things. The internet of things, the combining effects of all of that. And if we look at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in London, for example, Londoners did not know that it would foul the Thames, pollute the air, smudge the buildings. It's like they didn't know that there was going to be this impact. And originally, they were pretty happy about it. Exactly, more And more than that, they didn't know that their 11-year-old children would be working in the factories. They didn't know you would have armies of uh, starving workers. They didn't know you'd have a tiny group of infinitely wealthy entrepreneurs uh, they didn't understand many of the consequences of this remarkable technological revolution. And today the same is true. We didn't know. The people who invented the Internet, the, the digital pioneers, whether it's a Tim Berners-Lee or a J.R. Linklater, they didn't understand the revolutionary implications of their technology. Today, increasingly, we're seeing it with the disparity. We're seeing it on the horizon with the threat of massive unemployment. We're seeing it with fake news. We're seeing it with the behavior of some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. We're seeing it with the growing existential crisis of what we're supposed to do in an age of smart machines. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gutt, and my guest today is Andrew Keene, well regarded for his insights into the digital culture today and in the future. You may know him from his books, including The Internet is Not the Answer. He's here today with How to Fix the Future. You mentioned in the, your last response that there was a great centralization of wealth into a few. This was also spoken about on this show by Mohammed Yunus. He's looking at that centralization into just a very few people. It seems like we're still going in that direction. And how would we reverse it? That's a great question. Um, today, the nine wealthiest tech billionaires in Silicon Valley have a combined wealth uh, of 1.5 billion people in the world. The, the, the poorest 1.5 billion people in the world have the same amount of cash as, as nine billionaires in Silicon Valley. You know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the, uh, the, the Mark Benioffs of this world doesn't make those guys bad, but it does mean that there is a very, very disturbing disparity of wealth. Part of it has to do with tax. Uh, Eunice is very much concerned with re-architecting the capitalist economy. I don't really get into that so much in my book. My book focuses on solutions to the digital revolution. But certainly uh, those radical economic solutions 
are increasingly relevant. What I'm focused on is how those wealthy entrepreneurs should be reinvesting uh, their resources in society. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that we need new Andrew Carnegie's, whether it's a Jeff Bezos or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates. They need to recognize their responsibility to put much of their wealth back into society. Well, let's get to our favorite subject, ourselves. <laughs> Everybody's favorite subject. <laughs> I attended an EU conference just over a year ago, and the subject of one of the panels was the right to be forgotten. It's We hear it again and again in the EU. We don't hear it so much here. And it's referring to there's a set of things, and you can Google it to death, but you're not going to find it. I have a right for these things to be forgotten. And, of course, it's with respect to Internet and information. Um, I understood their concern, but it was difficult for me to hear because it was very clear to me, the distinguished moderator and well-respected panelist, they didn't understand the technology. It was really a very, very upsetting kind of thing here. Where does that leave us with creating public policy about technology and its behavior and use? I would actually push back on you on that. I think the issue with data is not understanding the technology. It's understanding the business model. So the great question of our age is what should the business models be of big data companies like Google and Facebook? Should they be business models in which they essentially give their products out for free and then leverage our personal data for their own benefit without us really understanding it and often compromising us or undermining us or spooking us out? Or should they have more concrete conventional business models? Uh, the, the question of privacy and data and surveillance aren't technology issues. They're business model issues. I like that because the business models are what driving it. This, these aren't public institutions. These are businesses. So the idea that public policy would solve it is just a defense mechanism that has to come afterward, after much of the damage has been done. Exactly. And I think one of the challenges is reminding ourselves that these companies aren't public companies. They're public in the sense of, of their ownership structure, but they don't exist for the benefit of the public. One of the, the, thing, one of the cheeky things I think Silicon Valley companies have done is present themselves as existing for the public good. So Facebook claims to be linking the world together. Uh, Google claims to be making information free. But these are clever marketing ways of convincing the world that these companies exist for the public benefit when they exist for actually something quite different, the reverse, the private benefit of the employees of those companies and the investors. So we need to remind ourselves of that. And we need to remind ourselves that when it comes to data, uh, the right to be forgotten, whilst I accept there may be problems with that particular piece of legislation, the only way to protect our privacy in an age of big data, what some people call surveillance capitalism, is by some regulation protecting our data in the face of these increasingly ubiquitous big data companies. Well, you write about in, in Putin's Russia, the dominant search engine is Yandex. And uh, in China, the Great Firewall blocks it. 
So we are so Google-centric in the West. It's not the only game in town. It's not the only game in town, although I have to admit I'd rather have Google than Yandex, and I'd certainly rather live in the West than in China or in Russia. I think we're seeing two different worlds kind of opening up, one of a kind of digital 1984 situation in China, um, which I write about in the book, uh, and then a, a Russian situation where Russia controls and employs all the trolls in the world to undermine our democracy. Uh, so I certainly want, wouldn't want to emulate either Russia or certainly China. China, I think, increasingly is a kind of digital Orwellian system where everyone is being watched and evaluated on their loyalty to the state. Um, Google is still the best game in town, but it doesn't make it the ideal game. There are still ways that we can make Google a better company. And I think, ironically enough, it's the Europeans who are forcing Google to become more accountable. They're not trying to drive Google out of business. They're simply making them more accountable, more accountable in terms of their potential monopolistic power, more accountable in terms of how they use their data, more accountable, of course, in terms of how they build their business and pay their taxes. And if there is a, a heroine in my book, it's Margaret Vestager, who I personally interviewed, the EU um, commissioner of antitrust, who more than any other single individual in the world has actually stood up to these vast private superpowers of Silicon Valley. Well, that was one of my questions right here. Who's Margaret Vestager and why is she important? Well, Margaret Vestager is a, a Danish politician who now is the EU commissioner of antitrust, who has been very aggressive and bullish in taking on Silicon Valley companies, from Google and Facebook to Apple. Uh, Tim Cook famously in his meeting with Vestager said it was the worst meeting he's ever had in his life. Uh, she's a <laughs> tough woman. She's a Danish politician who is very much committed to shaping technology in the EU, at least, for the benefit of citizens rather than private corporations. She's not anti-capitalist. She's not anti-profit. She's not trying to put these companies out of business. But she is very much committed to shaping a more civil digital world. And I think she is to be commended. She's not universally popular, certainly not in Silicon Valley. But in my experience, in my conversations with her, which are very much covered in the book, I think she's doing a, a tremendous job. Well, the next question is, well, what if we do nothing? And you call that technological determinism. If we do nothing, we, to, to use a rather vulgar phrase from England, we, we lie back and think of England. We accept that technology <laughs> is dominant. And we accept all the implications of that dominance. Imagine if we'd have done nothing in the 19th century with the Industrial Age. You talked about that, Moira. We would be living uh, in towns where we wouldn't be able to see each other now because pollution would be so bad. We'd be working in factories where 11-year-olds would be employed. Uh, we would be in situations where there were no schools. We have to fight for a better world. And I think the idea of doing nothing is really unthinkable. It's irresponsible of us, not only in terms of our own lives, but particularly in terms of our kids and the kids of our kids. We need to build a better digital world. It's not going to happen naturally. If we just stand back and allow the market to work its forces, then we have monopolies, we have inequality, we have unemployment, we have fake news, we have all the other deep 
troubling problems of our digital age. Does freedom of speech extend to deliberately spreading misinformation? I personally don't think so. I think that when it comes to the spreading of um, information that is purposely misleading, the platforms have a responsibility. Whether it's in Singapore or in the EU, these countries are making these platforms accountable. They have to to take responsibility. If someone posts flagrant lies on Facebook, sure, they should be responsible, but Facebook has to be responsible too. And again, it's no coincidence that the Germans, as much as the, the Singaporeans are pioneering this, where the Germans have created a new law in, in 2018 where Facebook can be fined many millions of dollars for knowingly publishing lies. We have to have accountability in this new media. When we do away with the editor, when we do away with the middle person, when we do away with curation, uh, truth is one of the casualties. I've written about this in three books so far, and in this book, How to Fix the Future, I focus on solutions to reestablishing truth as, a, as the core value in our democracy. Of course, without truth, what do we have? We have Donald Trump. We have Brexit. We have Putin's trolls. That's a nightmarish world. We have to fight against it. I remember when blogs first came out, and many of the CEOs in Silicon Valley started blogging for about 10 minutes, so to speak, and they all got into trouble one way or another right away. Now they don't blog anymore. But what do you think? They tweet now, don't they? Well, that my question is, actually, they don't do that either. What well, do you some one of their assistants highly, tweets highly for them. Highly curated. Highly has been through many, many lawyers and assistants and all of that. What do you think about the future of world leaders tweeting? It's a great question. And uh, when you asked that question, I thought of our, our, our current president, or your current president anyway, Donald Trump, who I think wakes up in the morning, gets on his iPhone and tweets whatever he feels like. I don't think there's any curation there. I think it's interesting. I think it can be refreshing in some ways. I'm not a big fan, as you can tell, of Trump. But I think his commitment to social media isn't entirely bad. The problem becomes, of course, when he does nuclear brinkmanship on Twitter and when him and a North Korean leader starts lobbying not nuclear missiles but nuclear threats at one another, that's terrifying. I think Twitter can be used in a responsible, coherent way. I think a, a more conventional president like President Obama use, use social media quite responsibly. I think there are European leaders like Emmanuel Macron in France who use it more responsibly. Uh, so I think social media certainly has a place in our democracy. The problem is, is when certain politicians use social media to spread lies and disinformation. Then we have the degeneration of public life, uh, of civic life, and of democracy itself. And I fear that is one of the consequences, one of the damaging consequences of the Trump presidency. Well, Emmanuel Macron in, in France, of course, he suffered from misinformation in his uh, electoral campaign and had to undo that. And he vowed to do something about it. Now he is just recently he spoke to journalists. He's talking about trying to propose a bill. And it's running smack up against what we would call freedom of speech. This is a difficult thing to actually do. It's a difficult thing to do. But 
the sort of the, the, the pure freedom of speech crowd, I think, are idealistic and unrealistic. There has to be limits to freedom of speech. If I start swearing at you in this interview, you'll cut me off. I'm speaking with Andrew Keene, the author of How to Fix the Future. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, ongoing efforts to treat NASH and cirrhosis of the liver, and Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft talks about the social determinants of health. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Andrew Keene, the author of How to Fix the Future. We've been talking about the challenge of making laws to stop the intentional spread of misinformation without compromising freedom of speech. It's a difficult thing to do, but the sort of the, the, the pure freedom of speech crowd, I think, are idealistic and unrealistic. There has to be limits to freedom of speech. If I start swearing at you in this interview, you'll cut me off. If you start <laughs> accusing me... I'll of, record it, but it won't get to air. Exactly. If, if, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I start personally um, criticizing you, uh, you, you, you will take me off the air. And, and, and if you start personally offending me, uh, they would do the... KQED would do the same. So... This idea of this pure freedom of speech doesn't exist. In our digital age, we need new, if not formal laws, certainly procedures, certainly common understandings, a civic responsibility to behave coherently to one another. We need to be accountable. I think that's one of the things that Estonia is doing. By creating a national ID system where... Everybody knows who's posting on social media. 
people have to be accountable. So sure, be very critical, be vulgar if you like, but at least take responsibility. So anonymity and free speech are particularly dangerous. And it's no coincidence. One of the things that Macron is doing is trying to go off the anonymous trolls who are very often being sponsored or paid for from Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, He's going after them because they're not accountable. They're not playing by any rules. They're essentially cheating. And Putin's Russia is sponsoring a new kind of Internet dominated by this irresponsible cheating. Well, when you think about Hyde Park in London and you could get on your soapbox and you could say just about anything, you knew it was the person standing there saying it. Exactly. And not only that, but, you know, at Hyde Park, you didn't employ thousands of other people in a line to spread your disinformation. The problem with the disinformation on the internet, again, sponsored by people like Putin, is it's very organized. It's being funded by millions of dollars of disinformation experts, uh, mostly located in, in Moscow, and bent on undermining our democracy, whether it's the United States or France, or now the Czech Republic, the goal of Putin is not to create any kind of civic discourse. The goal is to fight us. It's the new kind of uh, international weapon for destabilizing one's enemies. So when it comes to that, the concept of freedom of speech takes on a very different kind of character. There's one term I want everyone to know, and actually it's four initials, GD. PR and it's it's the EU General Data Protection Regulation. What is the state of that today? The state of that today is it's about to be implemented in the EU and it may be the law that changes everything because it essentially forces big tech companies big data companies, particularly Silicon Valley companies, to acknowledge that Internet users like you and I own our own data and forces a new kind of transparency on the Internet, which in my view is extremely healthy. Now, every no legislation is perfect. It will, it will appear and it will be reformed and changed over the years. But I think it represents a very encouraging beginning. And you're seeing the same kinds of initiatives now in the U.S. Maybe not identical, different kind of legal and political traditions. But we need protection as individuals against large companies. We need to own our own data and understand if that data is actually uh, profiting other corporations or companies or media institutions. Now, today, we're assaulted by all this great new technology. But we're not assaulted by what we could do <laughs> to protect ourselves. So how do we personally proceed? Do we freeze the purchase and use of technology? Do we, What do we do? That's a great question. It's the question that parents are continually asking ourselves. We're having that debate now about Apple, and indeed some Apple investors are saying that Apple has to be more transparent in acknowledging that their products are in fact addictive and that they need to take responsibility. Um, my view as a parent is certainly not to ban uh, and even discourage personal technology. My kids are as addicted to their iPhones as anyone. But I think we need accountability. We need for them to understand that um, that 
that this technology isn't that different from uh, sweet drinks or fast food. And if you have too much of it, it's extremely unhealthy. So we need to think of technology in the same way as we, we think of food or drink or entertainment. It's not natural. It's not by definition either good or bad. It depends how it's used. Uh, but as parents and as teachers, as regulators, we need to be responsible for um, we need to be responsible for making sure that the next generation aren't addicted to this stuff. I mean, in my book, I quote one statistic that suggests that we now have the average of attention span less than a goldfish, nine seconds. Now, what's going on? It's because we are so addicted to our devices that we've lost a sense of the world around us. We can't establish laws to force us to put our devices down, but we need teachers and parents um, and other regulators to see this. And just as the first food or drink of the industrial age was extremely unhealthy and got reshaped by consumers and regulators, we need to do the same with technology. There's a guy in the valley called Tristan Harris who's very much focused on this, and he's an important figure in pioneering a way of rethinking technology. It's also important to understand, and, and Harris is pioneering this, that engineers should not... Uh, software designers should not be consciously, actively designing technology which is addictive. That is immoral. So the creators of today's technology have to take a moral responsibility. They often obviously want to create products that are attractive and used, but they shouldn't be designing products that are by definition addictive. Otherwise, it's like selling heroin legally on the streets. We have to teach it in engineering school. Absolutely. Engineering schools and education are key. My final chapter focuses on education. And in many ways, whilst everyone always says, well, the biggest problem is fixing education, uh, that's a, a kind of a throwaway remark, which means we don't, have to, we don't know how to deal with the problems. The real challenge and opportunity lies in people pioneering education. In my book, I go to some Montessori schools and Waldorf schools where my kids went to see how technology can be taught responsibly rather than just thrown at the kids. Well, Andrew, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. hope you come back see us again. I'd love it. Thank you for some really great questions, Moira. My guest today is Andrew Keene. The book is How to Fix the Future. It's published by Atlantic Monthly Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, multiple approaches to treating the liver, from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH, up to and including cirrhosis of the liver from a variety of causes. And all this from one small biotech. Then we'll hear from Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft about the social determinants of health. First up, Dr. Steve Mento, the president and CEO of Canadas Pharmaceuticals. Well, Steve, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, 
We've always talked about Nash. We're always going to talk about <laughs> Nash until there ain't no more Nash. That's, that's right. not the. That's never going to happen. What is Nash? Nash is a, is a condition. It's associated with. Um, Fat in your liver, and as the fat accumulates in the liver, it leads to inflammation and fatty liver. So fatty liver is the precursor to NASH. Once you get to NASH, you have uh, inflammation associated with that fat in your liver. You can be perfectly fine with some fat in your liver, but as it progresses over time, it's the inflammation associated with that fat deposition in your liver that causes the problem. You've been working on a drug orally active, meaning you can take it a tablet or a pill. Tell us about that. What is it trying to do? Um, the drug that we have is called Emricosan, and it's been in clinical development uh, for a number of years right now. Uh, we actually have four clinical trials ongoing, oral, as you say, twice a day dosing, so it's an easy pill to take. Uh, the mechanism of action does two things. It fights the damage to cells that takes place due to fat and other, other things, but then also uh, has an impact on the inflammation that's associated with that. So you get two bangs for the buck with this drug. Uh, anti-damaging effect as well as an anti-inflammatory effect. Now, what I think is a little amazing that people may not understand is that typically when you have a drug like this, you're in phase 2B, that's an advanced Mm -hmm. phase 2 before you get to phase 3, is that you pick one clinical trial to go after and Mm -hmm. say, let's see how we do there before we go on. You've picked four. Right. Now, tell us about each of those four clinical trials and why you did four. I I can't think of any other company that said, let's do four clinical trials at once. Well, you're you're right. And in the space, we're unique in that context. Lots of people are focusing on one stage of the disease, an early stage of the disease, and are focusing their clinical trials there. We believe our mechanism of action is powerful enough to really deal with the disease at various stages. So we're testing four different patient populations, four different endpoints in those from very early stage disease up to and including patients with cirrhosis, late stage liver disease that have symptoms. And in that very last trial, which we just initiated, um, we're actually looking at clinical outcomes, whether or not our drug can can take a patient that's sick and physically make them better or prevent patients from getting sicker along the way. So they're not um, uh, they're real endpoints uh, and a regular approval endpoint. That's also distinctly different. The other thing that's important about this, this is a strategy that we put in place about three years ago. And these are really long trials. The longest duration of trial is two years in length. And then we have a six-month, we have a 72-week trial, and then we have a one-year trial. So all flavors associated with that. And very fortunately, in December of, of last year, we uh, did a deal with Novartis Pharma, Pharmaceuticals, which, is, which was critical for us because one of the reasons why little companies only do one trial and one, one component of an indication is they can't afford to do that. In this collaboration with Novartis now, they're going to foot the bill for the clinical trials, 50% of the phase two trials, and then 100% of the phase three clinical trials. So we can you go- You have phase three funded already. Phase three fund. In fact, this drug is funded all the way to approval, should we get it. And if it goes in all four of those indications, you have a pharma giant that can fund those. So we don't have to be selective and, and only try and go with one. Big, big move on our part to get that deal done. So you said that the the fourth trial was in advanced. It's right. cirrhosis of the liver right. at that point. What are the other three right. trials? The the one that's closest to that also cirrhosis, but asymptomatic. So patients can can go for years and not even know that their liver is is damaged, and so it's asymptomatic. But they have something um, that's called portal hypertension. It's like high blood pressure of your liver, 
So what happens is as your liver gets damaged, it clogs. And um, about one-fourth of your blood flow goes through your liver um, every minute. So it's, it's a ton of blood going through Excuse there. Me, so you can say imagine. that again. <laughs> about 25%. I think it's every four minutes. I may be a little bit, little bit. Uh, you could say an hour and I'd still be shocked. So a ton of blood's going through because the liver has, uh, you know, it's, it's a cleaning agent, cleans the blood, but it also provides nutrients to the blood, synthesizing stuff in there as well. As it gets clogged, the pressure builds up. What happens is your body, the blood's got to go someplace. It makes new vessels called varices. And one of the things that happens in patients with cirrhosis, those vessels actually pop. The pressure, it's like a balloon. It pops and you can actually bleed out internally. So in those earlier stage patients, they're asymptomatic, but there's a procedure that you can do called hepatic venous pressure gradient. It's a, a measurement. It's not as easy a blood, as a blood pressure cuff, but it, it is a way that you can measure pressure in the liver. And so we're going into those patients that have to have this procedure to determine how sick they are and then trying to reduce that pressure before they actually get the symptoms. So that's the second trial. The third trial is the one that a lot of the players in the space are going. That's in even earlier stage, patients that don't have cirrhosis yet but have fibrosis. So try and get prevent them from ever getting to that really clogged liver. That's the third one. All three of those trials are focused in patients whose etiology is NASH, meaning what's caused the damage is fat in the liver going to inflammation, as I talked about before. The fourth trial is completely unique. It's in a patient population that has already had a liver transplant, not due to NASH, but due to a prior hepatitis C virus infection. They've been cured of that infection with, with the wondrous new drugs that are out there, but the liver's still damaged. So we're trying to see whether our drug can actually help the liver repair itself faster in that trial. That's a very interesting concept. Uh, when you can get yourself in a place where you actually, your, your body can help repair itself. It intends to. Right. All of your system intends to repair itself when it's not under attack. Right. And your liver is a particularly remarkable organ in its ability to repair itself. So you, you decrease the damage, you take away um, the inflammation, and then over time it really can repair itself and that individual can go back to having a normal life. One concept that I think people also miss is that we always talk about these clinical t trials as did they reach their endpoints, but we, mm -hmm. we need them to do. We, right. we forget that the entire time you're doing science. Exactly right. This is, this is a clinical research uh, experiment, basically. None of these trials that we're doing right now, no one has ever done trials like this uh, with a drug like this ever before. So we have different endpoints in the trials that we're looking at and trying to understand in that particular patient population, not only can we, as you point out, can we hit that endpoint, but what's the meaning of that? So you reduce fibrosis by a bit. What does that mean down the road five years from now whether that to that patient's prognosis? In the later stage patients, if you prevent them from having symptoms, you know that pretty well. That's, that's a good thing. But in the earlier stage disease, it's really a scientific exercise, not only to measure the right things, but then down the road to verify whether or not those measurements actually can benefit the patients. Let's say this works mm -hmm. on any level for anyone. Right. Is this a medication that one would anticipate taking for the rest of your life? Um, it, it depends. Not necessarily so. So, for example, one of the, one of the ways, especially in early stage disease uh, with NASH, diet and exercise. Get the fat out of the liver. The liver can repair itself. So what we're looking for with, uh, with Emricosan in the later stage patients, basically helping them to survive. It's really survival at that stage of the game. And they may have to take the drug the longest because it would take the longest for the, re the liver to repair itself the more damage it is. But as you get in the early stage disease, it's possible that patients could take the drug for a year or two and have a significant enough improvement in their liver that 
uh, they wouldn't have to take it forever. The other thing that's remarkable about the liver, it takes a really long time for it to get in bad shape. But we believe this drug can kind of get it back in better shape pretty rapidly. So if you can move that clock backwards and have the liver in a healthy state, even if the patients don't take that drug forever, their prognosis is good because it's going to take a long time for that liver to get bad again. Well, Steve, always a pleasure. Please come back. Keep us updated. Always a pleasure to speak with you as well. Dr. Steve Mento is the president and CEO of Canadis Pharmaceuticals. And by the way, we checked it. Dr. Mento was right the first time. About one quarter of your blood gets filtered by your liver each and every minute. That's right. All your blood goes through your liver every four minutes. Feels like one of those times you want to say, take care of your liver and your liver will take care of you. More information is available at canadaspharma.com. That's C-O-N-A-T-U-S, canadaspharma.com. Chief Correspondent for Tech Nation, Dr. Daniel Kraft, wanted to talk about the social determinants of health. The obvious question was, what are social determinants? Well, the idea that our health outcomes uh, are somewhat driven by our our personal genetics, you know, how lucky we are to be born to certain parents. But over 50% is determined by our sort of sociome, our physical environment. Do you grow up uh, in a city like Beijing with a lot of air pollution or around noise pollution? What social context do you grow up in? Do folks value healthy eating? Uh, what are your individual behaviors from how much sleep you drink to how much, how much sleep you have to how much uh, you <laughs> Had might... Had any sleep lately? <laughs> a little deprived. How much uh, you might be drinking, how much stress you're under. Um, and that's greater than 50% of the impact on our health and rate leads to more than almost 80% of our healthcare costs as... as compared to our sort of biology, our genomics, our, our metabolome, our microbiome. And then the health technologies are a small amount, like 15% or less is impacted by how often you see the doctor and, and getting other elements. So we really need to start understanding the social determinants and often the health inequities. So for example, in the United States, type 2 diabetes is a big issue. Um, obesity exploding uh, uh, and getting as a, a big problem, pun intended. And if you have a, a relatively low income, your uh, risk of getting type 2 diabetes is about six times, or the rate, not risk, compared to higher incomes. Um, Asians uh, or you know, Latinos have almost four times the rate of Asians, and blacks about uh, you know, four, four and a half times the, the rate of, of, of you know, Caucasian Americans. So big disparities, somewhat sometimes racially, genetically integrated, but a lot of it driven by, um, by socioeconomic issues. And so if we can start to understand those, we might be able to impact them in powerful ways. You know, just some striking data here about the United States, one in four American children li live in poverty, right? One in four. So, you know- We don't think of it that way. It's like we're the United States, we're a rich country. One in four. And when you are living in a relatively impoverished uh, situation as a child, that dramatically impacts your health for the rest of your life. So, for example, and I'm trained in pediatrics, one of the interesting data points is if you start feeding children when they're about six months with solid foods or the mush, and often we'll give them, let's say, the sort of white rice cereal, that's maybe a low-cost version, as opposed to the whole wheat, a little more expensive version, the folks on the kids who start getting sort of the uh, white version of it, not the whole grain, end up with a much higher risk of obesity, and it changes their epigenetics. So how we uh, play all everything from diet to early education for kids, you know, to eat their veggies, uh, has huge long-term elements. There's 
pretty well-known data that, you know, about 50% of our health care costs are driven by 5% of the population. Often the folks who don't have health insurance or access to regular care, and they end up in the emergency room, usually when they're super sick and cost sometimes millions of dollars to uh, to save, or in some cases, it leads to their, their early demise, and their removal from the workforce, and all sorts of other elements there. So those are a few... This is like ignoring the little noise in your car. Sure. It's <laughs> all up... of a sudden, it's a big, big deal. And, and, then, and then another element is we have about 30% of uh, adults in the United States have low literacy. They don't read above, let's say, a sixth grade level. And having low access to health, understanding your own health information, it's often presented in very complex ways, leads to less adherence or compliance. People don't take their medications as as prescribed. There was a study done um, by uh, folks out of Stanford where they looked at barriers to health equity, literacy, and they gave them simple instructions for their children to take an antibiotic, amoxicillin, three times a day. They gave them a picture of a dropper, the basic usual prescription that comes scribbled on your, kind of printed on your on your sort of bottle of, of medication, and about 50% of folks didn't get it right. So kids aren't getting dosed properly by their parents if they have low levels of understanding about basic health information. And bottom line, you know, the United States, uh, we spend the most per capita, almost $9,800 per year, uh, number one in spending, but we rank the lowest in, in terms of the top 11 sort of socioeconomic countries, lowest in life expectancy, healthcare efficiencies, healthcare quality, and have the highest number of cost-related problems. So we really, if we spend a little more time on the social support elements, uh, we ha- won't have folks ending up with advanced diabetes and cardiovascular disease and uh, things that could have been, again, picked up proactively early by spending some money uh, you know, on the health side instead of the sick, sick care side of the equation. I'm fascinated by the literacy angle here. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't read about your uh, situation. You can't figure out how to take your medicine if you kind of forget the original instructions given to you, if they were described to you at all. Uh, all these things are, they're very complex. And I'm just wondering, we don't seem to have, with all the regulations we have, we don't have any regulations about how we need to give the information, give the medication to people with low literacy levels. Or even high literacy levels. I mean, who knew, who knew healthcare was so complex? All the way down to a couple examples in my, my personal life. My, my 14-year-old daughter recently had a knee injury playing soccer and needed surgery. You know, the stack of paper we got were, you know, about what she's supposed to do before surgery and afterwards, you know, could have been appified, could have been shown on a tablet, could have been turned into a cartoon instead of the surgeon sort of scribbling on a, a piece of paper or handing out, you know, faded uh, printouts. Great surgeon, great outcome. But even as a, a clinician myself, it's like there's a lot of lot to follow there, even a relatively straightforward knee surgery. Um, I just had to re-sign up for health insurance and understanding the differences between, you know, uh, uh, what's covered, uh, what the terms mean in between the blondes and the gold and the silver plan. You know, not not even for someone who graduated from medical school. Never take never take the blonde option. Just <laughs> trust me on this. Being a blonde, <laughs> but you know, the blonde option might be more fun. Uh, but you know, literally, health literacy translates to life. It, it means understanding you know what might be the best. Uh, you know, diets and ways to take care of your kids or how to dose them with Tylenol. If you overdose a kid with Tylenol, that can lead to liver failure and has another, other, you know, death. Um, it means uh, being uh, understanding, uh, particularly lower socioeconomic folks have the highest morbidities. They often have hypertension compared with diabetes and, and heart disease. There are often eight or more medications. 
How do they keep track of that with a, a, a pillbox uh, uh, maybe is the best technology today. We're starting to see new solutions in the digital health space try to inform folks about how to track their meds in easy ways. Sometimes that's on your smartphone. Sometimes that can be simplified to a basic calendar uh, for an older folks. It, we've seen smartphones being built for folks who have poor vision or aren't uh, tech wizards so that they can understand and, and track their health issues. We're seeing the ability to folks have dementia to track them in smart ways. But bottom line, information is the, the sort of the the, the gold of, of, of healthcare. And if you can't transmit that uh, both to a clinician, to care teams, where a lot of problems occur in terms of transferring patients and sharing information, or to the patient or the caregivers themselves, it's a, it's a big problem. One thing in the news that might help this in the last week, a company out of the Bay Area called Proteus Digital Health had the FDA approval for a new pill uh, where it has an RFID sensor essentially baked into it. So uh, when the patient takes the pill and swallows it, it can be tracked, as a little patch you wear, and this can uh, help track what's called adherence or compliance. And the first drug was for a, a, an antidepressant called Abilify, and it might be used for patients with, let's say, schizophrenia to really track them in important ways. We're really taking their medications. It makes a huge difference. Or tuberculosis. There's some concern it might be a big, big brother. Someone's tracking your taking So your they meds. take a scan and you can see the RFID inside? No, it's a simple pill with a sort of uh, it's a pretty magical technology. It's talking about exponentials coming together. It, uh, it baked into the lining of the pill is a sort of a digestible uh, RFID that, that can be picked up by the sensor. It has no battery in it, and it gets you know through your system no problem. It's, it's a sort of inorganic element, but it's a way of actually tracking that folks take their meds. Well, where's the sensor? The sensor's actually... In, in the pill itself. It's a little electric, uh, so almost like a little radar. It has its own individual number. So if you have a whole pile of pills, it can tell you which one, when you took it, what timing. And for some folks, this may help them stay on top of their medication, stay more engaged, and really, particularly for diseases where it's super important that you take your meds on time and in the right order. Example, folks with tuberculosis who might be infectious um, or with certain, say, psychiatric disorders where they're often not on top of their medications. You know, this is an example of sort of helping health literacy out with, with technology layers. One of the challenges with all these elements, it depends on who you're talking to, their age, their language, their culture, their education. A lot of the ways we present health information is one size fits all, whether it's on your sort of health app and tracking your steps and might be you know only giving you points, but it might need to be in a certain language with a certain color. It might be giving you badges or other incentives, including dollar incentives to stay more engaged and on top and, and having so the di- digital nud- nudges to help folks before they ever get obese uh, by taking an extra 100 steps a day can make a huge difference over time. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.